Hello everyone, thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General podcast. I am Al, and today we're going to be doing another historical gaming episode, and since it's almost international talk like a pirate day, what better time is there to talk about pirates, the scourges of the seven seas? Now, it should be no surprise that there are a lot of myths about pirates. Pirates have been around since antiquity, but for today's episode, we're going to be focusing primarily on what some people call the golden age of piracy, and that is the Pirates of the Caribbean. So this is uh, something that a lot of people are familiar with. We've seen these types of pirates in countless books, movies, TV shows. Disney has a theme park ride for Pirates of the Caribbean. And of course, they've had their successful Pirates of the Caribbean movie franchise with Johnny Depp. So there's a lot of myths about pirates. So let's start out by talking about some of those myths and dispelling some of them. First, a lot of the images that come to mind when we talk about Caribbean pirates can be traced back to Robert Louis Stevenson's book, Treasure Island. Some of the phrases that we normally associate with pirates, like shiver me timbers, well, that came from that book. And the stereotypical pirate accent where he's always saying, Arr! Again, that is actually traced back to one of the first Disney adaptations of Treasure Island from back in the 1950s. The actor who was portraying the pirate, and I forgot his name, but he thought that sounded cool, I guess, so he threw a lot of R's into his dialogue, and that, well, it's it stuck. In reality, pirates really didn't have a specific way they sounded. As we're going to talk about later, pirate crews could be very, very diverse. So, since you have a, the potential to have people from different regions and different nationalities, there's no, going to be no uniform way that a pirate would talk. Another image often associated with the pirate is the Jolly Roger. This is a black flag with the skull and crossbones on it. Now, in reality, there were actually many different pirate flags, but it was not unusual for pirates to have black flags that often featured skulls, skeletons, or other images associated with death. Others used just a plain black flag. Now, if you were sailing the seas back then and you saw a ship approaching with a black flag, that was actually a sign of relief because it meant that the pirates were willing to give quarter. So if you gave in to their demands, they might let you live. What you didn't want to see is an all-red flag because if you saw a plain, solid red flag, it meant that those pirates were there to kill and, well, you better start saying your prayers and you better get ready for a fight. Now, pirates were far from being nice guys, but they didn't always kill their prisoners. Actually, prisoners were a lot more valuable to them if they were alive, because living prisoners could be ransomed off. And Blackbeard, one of the most famous pirates in history, he actually saw it as a business decision. 
and this was from a documentary I saw a while ago. Uh, I'm pretty sure it was Blackbeard. It may have been another pirate, but his whole philosophy is that if you let these merchants live, then you can steal from them at a later date. Another interesting thing about pirates is that they were pirate ships were actually floating democracies. So in that regard, they were quite a bit ahead of a lot of the the nations and the people that they stole from. The crew ran on the principle, one man, one vote. So every member of the crew had the right to vote in any sort of pirating affairs. It was even possible for a crew to vote the captain out if they felt that he was doing a bad job. So as I mentioned before, pirate crews were usually diverse. And it was not unusual for former slaves to be on pirate crews. And they were actually treated fairly equally, a lot better than they would have been if they were still slaves in you know, these more civilized countries. Basically, as long as you could pull your weight, you were considered part of the crew and you were treated equally, regardless of your skin color or your nationality. Another myth we see is a pirate code, and well, that one actually does have some basis in reality. One pirate that we know had a code was Bartholomew Roberts, who was often called Black Bart. He had a code that had uh, rules on how disagreements between pirates would be settled, how treasure would be split, and in the case of some codes, there were even rules governing how much wounded pirates would receive if they couldn't participate in battle anymore. Another common image we see with pirates is the eye patch. Now, if it is certainly possible that pirates may have wore these patches to cover a an injured eye, but this one again, as far as its historical validity, it's somewhat in question. The theory is that a pirate would wear an eye patch even if he had two perfectly functioning eyes. And the reason is you would keep that eye under the, the patch so it would be dark adapted. So if you go down under the decks of an enemy ship, you would take off the eye patch and you'd have that one eye that was already dark adapted, as opposed to having to wait a few minutes for your eyes to adjust to the dark. It's one of those things that it's plausible but as far as I could tell from my research, there's no historical evidence of it having been a common practice. Also, pirates didn't necessarily make people walk the plank or even maroon them on a deserted island. Most likely, if a pirate was voted off of the crew, he would be kicked out the next time they reached port. Though Black Bart, he did have uh, some rules where he indicated that a disobedient pirate would actually be marooned, where he would be left on a small island or a sandbar with some food, a little bit of water, and a pistol in case he decided to commit suicide. Also, not all pirates were even males. There are at least two known female pirates, Anne, Bonnie, and Mary Reed, I believe were their names, so it would be possible for female characters to be pirates, but, you know, historically they weren't that common, but it, it is certainly possible that they could exist. Finally, there's the idea of treasure maps. Now, this is another one that 
we only find in the works of fiction. Realistically, pirates would not have buried their treasure and used a map to locate it again. First of all, that would be evidence. So if your crew was captured and the authorities found this map showing where your treasure is, that would be evidence that you were a pirate and they could go find your treasure. But let's also look at this from a logical point of view. After you get paid, do you take your paycheck, do you cash it, do you put all that money in a box and then go bury it out in the middle of nowhere? Probably not. Chances are you're going to keep it in a bank, you know, or you're going to spend it. So that's another reason why we don't really see pirates historically making treasure maps. Pardon the expression, but they would usually take their money and go to the nearest port town and spend it like a drunken sailor. Let's take a look at some common D&D classes and how they would fit into a pirate-themed campaign. Now, there are a couple of classes that I think would be extremely out of place, so probably would not be a good idea to introduce them. Obviously, the Paladin is one. I mean, this whole concept of sailing around at sea, stealing from other other ships, that's not going to go very well with the Paladin and his lawful good tendencies. The Druid is another option. You know, while the Druid on a pirate ship could certainly be concerned about the the seas and keeping the seas safe, well, at least in a lot of the fantasy literature that I've seen Druids in, they're primarily land dwellers, so probably best to keep them on shore. The Ranger, that's kind of iffy. I mean, I think that if you are going to allow a Ranger on a pirate ship, probably would be best to find some way to justify it. Again, if you're using 2nd edition, there is a kit called the Sea Ranger in the Complete Pirate's Handbook. Now, of course, the Ranger and Plaid would both only work if you're doing a good guy pirate crew. If you want to be the traditional pirate crew where you're going around stealing uh, treasure from other ships, that's not really going to work very well with a ranger character because, you know, they're not going to go do that kind of stuff. Most of the other common classes, though, could work in a pirate campaign. Fighters would probably be the most common. And in the second edition Complete Fighters Handbook, they do actually have a character kit for a pirate. I'm sure they probably have something in third edition as a prestige class. Haven't played that edition of much, so I'm not sure, but... And the reason it would work is because pirates were often started out as privateers, or they were soldiers in the in the British Navy. And sometimes these soldiers, these privateers, they would find themselves unemployed after a conflict. So they would continue plying the only profession they knew, how to fight at sea. Thieves could also work. Their climbing skills could be very useful when working in the rigging of a ship. Also, their ability to pick locks would be very helpful if they find any ships that have uh, treasure chests on them and no key in sight. Pirates, of course, didn't always just fight at sea. They would sometimes conduct raids on port towns or fortifications if they had a large enough pirate crew or if maybe they were acting in in cooperating with another pirate gang. So the thief pirates 
they could actually be good spies, and they could use their stealth skill to infiltrate enemy fortifications. And if you want to go really old school, the Thief Acrobat from 1st Edition would also be very useful because he would probably have an easier time boarding an enemy ship than a, a normal pirate would. Next, there's the Bard. A Bard could actually work fairly well in a pirate campaign because when these pirates were out at sea for long periods of time, the Bard's songs and stories would be the only entertainment they would have. He could also use his abilities to inspire men before a a major expected battle. If you're doing a historical fantasy campaign, priests and wizards would also be appropriate members of a pirate crew, especially if they have spells that allow them to manipulate water and wind, because, you know, that could be very valuable. I mean, like a wizard's, they have a spell, Gust of Wind, which they could use to either speed up their ship or maybe slow down a following ship. Also, priests could use spells like Control Weather to tip the odds in their favor. Call Lightning is another priest spell. That would be very helpful for a pirate priest because he could use that lightning to strike an enemy ship and set their masts on fire. Now, the thing that would be kind of challenging, though, is trying to work the cleric into a pirate crew because I'm I'm sure in some fantasy settings there are clerics of deities that evil or deities of thieves. Those types of clerics could work well in a a pirate crew, but I think if you have a cleric who worships a god of the sea, especially a more of an evil one like Poseidon, or more of a capricious one, well, they could probably work fairly well on a pirate crew as well. Next, let's move on to weapons and armor. Common melee weapons used by pirates include daggers, knives, belaying pins, which you could use as a club, and hand axes. They usually preferred these smaller weapons because these weapons were not only useful tools in their day-to-day lives, but since they're usually going to be in close quarters, you're going to want those smaller weapons that don't require a lot of space to use. Obviously, something like a polearm or a two-handed sword wouldn't quite work very well on a pirate ship. When it comes to swords, though, there is one weapon that has become associated with pirates, and that is the cutlass. The cutlass was an ideal weapon for the pirate in many ways. It was similar to a machete in that it was both a weapon and a useful tool, You could use a cutlass like a machete to clear brush if you're on the land. You could also use it to cut through rope or canvas and maybe even chop down saplings or smaller trees. Also, a pirate could use the the edge of the blade, the the blunt edge or the, the, the broad side of it to smack around an uncooperative captive. But the main reason the cutlass was so effective is because of its smaller size, it would be a lot easier to wield in these close quarters. Plus, a lot of cutlasses had a handguard, and you could use that to punch someone in the face and, you know, give your punch a little extra oomph. Now, during this time, 
black powder weapons were also really common among pirates as they were among the the navies that they fought against. So if you are going to be running a second edition pirate campaign, one book that would be extremely helpful is A Mighty Fortress, because since that one takes place during the Renaissance, there's actually quite a number of rules in there for cannons and firearms. Usually, a pirate would try to carry several flintlock pistols if he could afford them, because problem with these black powder weapons is after you load it after you shoot it you got to reload it and that that would take a while so you'd only be able to fire every other round so it was more like you'd take out your pistol you'd shoot it then you'd discard it or and shoot another one and i believe what some pirates did is they tied the handles of their pistols together by a rope so that way they could just hang them around their neck so they didn't have to drop them and risk losing them Another reason to carry multiple flintlock pistols, black powder weapons weren't always very reliable with how they went off. Sometimes if you shoot one of these weapons, it might take a few seconds for the weapon to discharge, and sometimes the weapon wouldn't even go off at all. So you'd always have that backup that you could use before switching to your cutlass or your hand axe or your knife or whatever you, whatever the other weapon you were carrying. There were several different types of cannons in use during this time, or, well, not necessarily the cannons, but specifically the types of shot they would use within them. Most pirate ships would have a few larger cannons, and then they would also have a few smaller ones that were used by just one person. Those could be aimed with a little bit more precision. In addition to your normal large round cannonball that we often think of, there were a few other specialty shots. First, there was the grape shot, and this was a shot that was designed to have multiple pellets come out. So it functioned similar to a shotgun, and the grape shot was used primarily for uh, trying to disable a ship. A similar type was called a canister shot, and it was smaller than a grape shot was. This was an anti-personnel weapon as opposed to an anti-ship weapon. A canister shot would often contain fragments of metal or rock or nails or any spare extra material that they could find if they didn't have a lot of smaller balls they could put in there. And then when it would hit the ship, it would explode and it would send these fragments out to damage the enemy. Another unique type of cannonball is the chain shot. This is a cannonball that was hollow and Inside, there were two, uh, well, there was a chain that connected both halves of the the cannonball. So when the chain shot was fired, it would start spinning around, and these were usually used to try to damage the mast or the sails to slow down the ship. And there were a few other types of shots they developed that, again, they weren't intended to be used against people, but rather they were meant simply to disable an enemy ship. Now, since a pirate campaign is going to be taking place primarily on the ocean, armor would not have been common. You could allow something like leather armor or padded armor, though historically it wouldn't be accurate. Bucklers wouldn't necessarily be bad either, but 
generally a pirate just went into battle without armor. The obvious reason is because if he fell overboard, well, if he had armor on, he would sink like a rock. Or Even if he had light armor, it would be harder for him to stay afloat. Also, since pirates often had to try to board one ship to get to another, they usually needed one hand free to grab onto ropes or other things to get over to the other ship. So in that case, a shield wouldn't have been very useful. So I suppose you could introduce a rule where you could allow pirates to gain an armor class bonus if they're unarmored to reflect the fact that they are going to have to be used to doing a lot of dodging and blocking and parrying. Obviously, items like bracers of defense and rings of protection would be extremely valuable to a pirate because those will give you protection without actually having to weigh you down with armor. Well, how would we start a pirate campaign? Now, I suppose you could start out by having a group of characters sitting around in a bar, and then one of them goes, hey, let's be pirates. Let's go find a ship and go out and steal from other ships. You could do that, but there's actually a few other ways that you could introduce your characters into a pirate crew. First, there is press gang option. Way back when, the British Navy employed press gangs. And what they would do is if they needed people to work on their ship, they would go out to the the towns that they were visiting and they would see someone and be like, hey, you look like a stout individual. You're coming with us. You're now going to work on this ship. And it was a practice that was eventually abolished. In theory, pirates could do the same thing. Now, being forced onto a pirate ship is or even a ship back in the days of the British Navy like that, not really very desirable. Usually the people who were pressed into the crew, generally they were paid less than the people who were there voluntarily, if they were even paid at all. And since they were taken aboard the ship against their will, they were often chained on the ship when they were in port to make sure that they didn't run away and try to desert the the crew. Also, some of the British captains back then, they were very authoritative with their discipline. So if you were caught breaking some rule, you might be punished with lashings or beatings. Well, this actually leads to a common reason how honest sailors became pirates. Sometimes, when a pirate crew boarded another ship and they'd taken the treasure it was not uncommon for the captain to offer anyone on the crew the opportunity to join his crew to become a pirate. Now, as I said, the British naval officers back then were very harsh and very heavy-handed with their punishments. So if you had someone who was press-ganged onto one of these ships, he could very well decide that, well, let's go to the you know, the pirate crew, because at least then he would be considered an equal member of the crew. These two methods, press gangs and receiving an offer to join a crew, could explain how exotic classes like a bard or a wizard or even some types of rangers could end up on a pirate crew. 
Another option that works really well if you don't want to be bad guy pirates is you could be privateers. These were people who were hired by the king to fight pirates. This is the case where classes that normally have to be good, like a ranger, would work out because the king could recruit a sea ranger or there's some kits like the the justifier, a, a ranger kit, or if you choose to do a more military type kit uh, like the Myrmidon kit from 2nd edition, that could explain how those types of rangers end up on a ship fighting pirates. Another good ranger kit that you could use for a pirate campaign is the Explorer, especially if he's going to be a privateer, because naturally this ranger would be useful to have around because of his navigation and exploration skills, but since characters like explorers often have this desire to see the world, he could see joining a a privateer crew like this as a good opportunity to explore beyond his normal territories. A final option is you could decide to introduce a oppressive, tyrannical government um, or kingdom somewhere in your campaign world. And this would be another good option for a good guy pirate crew, where you are working against this, this evil empire, and only you're doing it by fighting ships at sea. And I suppose this is one way you could introduce a Paladin onto a pirate crew, but again, it's still kind of hard to imagine someone who represents a holy warrior or a knight in shining armor being on this type of crew, but, you know, it's always possible. So when you are doing a pirate-themed campaign, I would recommend you could have the PCs be the main crew. So this could be actually a really fun campaign for people who like tactics, because if you're doing ship-to-ship combat, or if you're storming fortresses, as opposed to diving into dungeons, well, you'd have to use a lot of teamwork and a lot of tactics to board that ship or to storm that fortress. Another option is, said the PCs could be the main characters on a crew of 10 or 20 sailors, and you could give each PC two NPC crew members under his command. So these would probably be first-level fighters or thieves. Now, when you are running a campaign, not all the treasure that you would have to go for necessarily needs to be gold and jewels. There were a lot of other things that were very, very valuable among pirates. Fresh fruit was one thing, because since they were going to be out at sea so long, it was not unusual for pirates to suffer from malnutrition because they weren't getting enough vitamins and minerals. They were usually eating like dried meat or bread or stuff that could be kept for long periods of time. So something like fresh fruits and vegetables would be very, very valuable to them. Medicine was also a very important treasure to pirates. One story even goes how Blackbeard ransomed off a bunch of captives in exchange for a chest full of medical supplies. And it's believed that he did this to help his crew members who were suffering from various venereal diseases. Because, well, after you're out at sea for a a while and you get back into port, usually the pirates are going to head to the house of ill repute and hook up with some lady folk. 
Now, when it comes to monsters that you might introduce into a pirate-themed campaign, since we're probably going to be doing a historical fantasy setting, honestly, any sort of aquatic monster would be quite appropriate. Obviously, like the Kraken and the Sea Serpent would both be very appropriate in a pirate-themed campaign because, well, there was a time when people thought that those were very real monsters. You could also introduce Koatoa and Sahagin as well. One place you might want to look for inspiration is the Disney Pirates of the Caribbean movie on Stranger Tides. They had mermaids in that particular movie, but these were not the beautiful mermaids who were just sit on a rock and, you know, sing songs. These were vicious mermaids who would attack and kill people. So I think that would be another good foe for a campaign like this. Also in the Pirates movie, uh, Dead Man's Chest. No, I think it, it was the, it was the second one. I think it was yeah, Dead Man's Chest. The uh, captain of oh, I forgot his oh Davy Jones. That's right, Davy Jones. He had control of a kraken. So that's that's another way you could introduce the kraken into a campaign. Sirens would be another type of monster that uh, you could easily work into the campaign because. Well, again, they would be these beautiful women who would, you know, they would sit on these rocks near the shore and they would sing songs that would charm someone to come up and, you know, try to to go by them. And, of course, they were doing this just to lure people into dangerous situations. Another monster that could be interesting, and I forgot the name of it, but I know it appears in the second edition Monster Compendium. It's one of them in the back. It begins with a Z, so I think it's like either the last or on one of the last pages in the book. But there are these large island-sized turtles. And it was said in that description that some types of pirates would use these uh, these giant turtle creatures as mobile bases. So that might be kind of fun if you decide to introduce that type of creature into your campaign trying to find a way for your players to uh, find and control one of these these large turtle-type creatures. Well, with that said, I'd like to thank you all for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed today's episode. Of course, you can find me at poigamestudio.com. You can also visit Point of Insanity Game Studio on Facebook. If you have ideas for topics you'd like to see me cover in the future, please feel free to either contact me through the website or uh, leave a comment on the Facebook page, and I'll certainly take any suggestions into consideration. I mean, I've been doing a, a lot of these historical gaming episodes recently, and I've got a few ideas for some other places I'd like to touch, but... If you have an idea for a place that you'd like to see me do a historical gaming episode on, either leave a comment on the Facebook page or send me an email. So with that said, thank you for tuning in. Have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are, and happy gaming.